waiting. Waiting is difficult, isn't it? Or as one famous song puts it, the waiting is the hardest part. I don't like waiting. Many of us don't like waiting, do we? But have you ever considered just how much time we spend waiting for something to happen? Waiting to hear back about that job. You know, you apply. Maybe you even interview. But then what happens? You wait. Kids, you, you wait to hear your exam results. Maybe you're having medical tests. Don't you wish you could just get all the answers in that first doctor's visit? But you wait. You're looking at your phone and you're, you're waiting for your phone to ring, sometimes for days. You wait for that big sporting event. If you're an expectant parent, you're waiting for nine months. You have a due date and you wait. And sometimes you have to wait even more. Parents who have adopted children, those waits can take what seems like forever. Much of life is simply waiting. Waiting between various events in our lives. It can often feel like life is made up of a few epic events and the rest of life is just one big parenthesis of waiting. This is what December is for us as Christians. It's a time of waiting. Christmas is coming, Christmas is coming, but it's not here yet. We've been celebrating Advent here at Redeemer this month. Maybe you've never considered what Advent really is. Kids, tweens, do you know the meaning of Advent? Now raise, raise your hand if you're a Redeemer kid or tween. Okay, I know I can't see all of you, but I, I love just picturing your smiling faces. Well, what a joy it is to be able to communicate to you even here on video. I wonder if you know what Advent is. Well, if not, let me tell you. It's the arrival of a noteworthy person or event. It's an anticipation of something great to come. It starts with waiting. Kids, when I was your age, I wasn't yet a follower of Christ. And the only thing, I mean, the only thing that I was excited about this time of the year was the presence under the Christmas tree. That's, that's all I was waiting for. My parents had a tradition of slowly adding more and more presents under the tree throughout the month. And so every now and then I'd find yet another present there and there would be a great anticipation. I was counting down the days, 10 days until Christmas, five days until Christmas, three days until Christmas, and then it, it was finally there. Now, for me, the actual event was, was thrilling. I loved opening the presents, but it was so hard to wait. It's agonizing. I mean, kids, do you know what I mean? You know, over those days, you start sitting closer to the presents. You anticipate what's inside. You see the shapes. You see the sizes. You start making guesses as to what it is. Now, in our family, we had a big rule. You were not allowed to touch or pick up the presents. But I have to admit, Pastor Dave, as a seven-year-old, may have picked up a few gifts. Because, of course, you have to pick it up. You have to shake it. You can get some clues from the sound or the shape or, or the weight. It was so difficult waiting for that day. December was so tough. Now, for some, it's not the waiting of presents. Maybe it's the waiting to regather with family, with parents, maybe with siblings, aunts, uncles, grandparents, grandchildren. You'd wait all month to see your loved ones. Now, this year in the pandemic, many of us are having to wait even longer to see our family again. Now, waiting is difficult. But no waiting was more difficult than the years leading up to what's become known as the first Christmas. From Adam and Eve's sin and rebellion to the sin, pain, and death over the centuries, there was waiting year after year. God's grace poured over Adam and poured over Eve, so much so that that we get a gospel glimpse in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where we see that a deliverer will come who will crush Satan. But when? 
When would he come? When would he arrive? See, the Old Testament is filled with laws and filled with regulations that couldn't save. I mean, everywhere we look in the Old Testament, we see prophets and we see priests. We even see kings, but we don't see a savior. No one could ultimately save God's people. Not even King David. And that's what we've been seeing in 2 Samuel. Our texts these next two weeks fit together nicely with Advent. They fit together nicely with Christmas, even in a non-traditional way. Pastor Morgs will bring the book to a close with David's death, but today we have more waiting. If Advent is about waiting, then 2 Samuel is about waiting too. David was a king. He was a man after God's own heart. And yet we're waiting. We're waiting for him to be the king that we want him to be. We want the kingdom to come. We want the kingdom to arrive in all its fullness. We want all wrongs set right. I mean, could David be that king? I mean, we wait, but time and time again, the people's dreams here in this time, they come crashing down. David wasn't ultimate. David wasn't perfect. He wasn't the savior. And we see that the waiting continues. You know, as we've studied first and now Second Samuel, and as you read through the pages of the Kings, there are many good stories, many good points to be made, much to learn about life, much to learn about godliness and sin. But ultimately, we see that not even Israel's greatest king was Israel's true and final king. I mean, every misstep, every dark deed of David was a reminder. It was a whisper. The king is not here yet. The king is not here yet. The king is not here. It was a long period of waiting. And we're not talking about nine months or nine years, but centuries and centuries. Our passage today is a reminder to us that in that day, the true king had not yet come. And it's a reminder to us today that our true king has not yet come back. And in our passage today, we'll see three points. First, we're going to see the rebuke of the king, chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. Then we'll look at the return of the king, in chapter 19, verse 9, all the way to the end, in verse 43. And then the rebellion against the king. We'll see that in chapter 20. So the rebuke of the king, the return of the king, and the rebellion against the king. Well, let's start where we always start with the first point, the rebuke of the king. We left off a couple weeks ago in chapter 18, where we see David's son Absalom chasing his dad. And we see it come to an end. David asks his military to deal graciously with his son Absalom. Please deal gently with my boy for my sake. But then the battle comes and there's fighting, there's, there's combat, there's, there's war. It's war. Normally shots would be fired. You wouldn't expect there to be an opportunity to kill some men and spare others as if you could choose. No, you just fight in battle. I'm not even sure how you could identify everyone, but here that opportunity arose. A warrior has the opportunity to kill and to take out Absalom. But he refrains following David's orders. But then word gets quickly to Joab. Joab is the commander of David's army. And let's just say that once again, Joab takes orders from no one, takes matters into his own hands, and he kills Absalom. Now, we don't get commentary from, from the author here or from God. Now, this is typical in these books. Was it right for Joab to do that? Was it wrong? Well, we merely have a report of the facts. One Bible commentator says of Joab that his actions were both rebellious against the king, but also rational. Now, Absalom was an enemy of Israel. He was rebelling against the king. He was evil. This guy was the worst of the worst of the worst. He was fighting for the throne. He wanted power. As David's son, he was also the greatest threat to the kingdom and God's people. Now, Joab may have made the right decision, even though it was against the king. 
You might say Joab did what the king should have done, even in rebellion. And what was going through David's mind in these moments? Well, this has to be agonizing here as we read these pages as a father. I mean, think about it, you dads and moms out there. Imagine how painful it is to see a child go astray. Some of you have mourned as your children, teens, or even adult kids have rejected Jesus and have lived apart from him. I mean, that's the number one prayer request at the top of all of our lists as parents is that our children would know and love Jesus. I mean, surely we pray for health, we pray for friendships, we pray for all these kinds of things. But at the very top, what consumes our prayers is not their safety, it's not their success, it's not even their future spouse. What consumes our prayers for our children as they grow up is that they would love Jesus with all their heart with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength, that they would serve Christ in some way, whether it be a businessman or a woman or a gardener or a nanny or a doctor or a pastor or a teacher. We pray that our children would treasure Christ all the days of their lives. And so when they choose not to, this is difficult. I mean, David's children were, they had gone astray. It was horrible. One level, we want to grieve with David. We want, to, we want to be patient with David, knowing that this is hard. And friends, moms, dads, if you're grieving a wayward child, whether they're 12 or 32, whatever, the, whatever age they are, we hurt with you and we pray for you. I am sorry you're going through this. Don't stop. Don't stop praying. Don't, don't, don't give up. Don't stop doing what's right. But there are cases when we as parents, when even our own children, whether young or whether grown, where we have to step up and we have to do the hard thing. Bible scholar Dale Ralph Davis says that David tried to treat cancer with candy when Joab knew it required surgery and Joab nominated himself as the surgeon. We will almost for sure never deal with exactly what David had to deal with. <laughs> Certainly not in these, in these ways. This is drastic. But the point is clear, Absalom needed to be dealt with and David did nothing. Discipline was needed and David was passive. So now discipline is done, Joab kills Absalom and then our passage officially begins with Joab getting a report from the palace in verse one. Look there in chapter 19. It was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. Now, you'd mourn for the dead publicly like this. This was an abnormal. But in this case, it appears dramatic and even worse. It's just bad timing. It should have been a day of celebration. The king's enemy was dead. The army was victorious. They had done it. The kingdom is preserved. David is still king. Now, that report to Joab seems to have passed quickly to Joab's troops, David's men, David's weeping immediately lowers morale to an all-time low. Look at verses two through four. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people, for the people heard that day. The king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It was victory day. What do you do when you have a victory? Well, in those days, you'd have a parade, you'd have a feast. The battle had been won, but then the victory here turns to mourning and even worse, it brings great shame to the army who had risked their lives for the nation. The enthusiasm of the men, it's, it's just gone. I mean, there's no, there's no music, there's, there's no dancing, there's no feasting. Instead, the men stole in. That means they came in. They came into the city as those who were ashamed 
when they flee from battle. I mean, just imagine the scene. When you flee from battle, you're ashamed. Your head is, is down. You're horrified. You're running. You're scared. It's a bad day. That's how these men felt now watching their king cry over their enemy. They come into the city. They must have been able to somehow see the king because verse 4, it says that the king, he, he covered his face. He was, he was mourning. He didn't want to be seen. And the text gives an interesting detail. Did you notice this? It doesn't just say David was crying. It says he cried with a loud voice. And you could just hear those words there. Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I mean, he cried loudly for all to hear. I mean, still calling him my son. Now, again, at one level, we sympathize with David, don't we? But again, what about these men? What about those who fought for him? What about Israel? What about God's people? What about the kingdom? What about honoring God? I mean, Joab gets this. He charges in and he rebukes the king. This is, this is our first point. He rebukes the king. And see, at times we love Joab, don't we? And at times Joab seems to get it. He seems to get it here. Look at verses five through seven. You have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants who have this day saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. But Joab is a bold brother. I mean, he's speaking to the king. It's one rebuke after another rebuke. Joab talking to the king like Nathan before. He's not holding anything back <laughs> as he interacts, as he, as he goes towards David. King, you've been covering the faces of your servants with shame. They saved your life. And not only your life, but he saved your sons and your daughters. They saved your wives, your concubines, everyone. This is a day of celebration. We fought for you. We saved Israel. We gave our lives for you. You were about to lose everything, David, and now by shunning us, you're about to lose all that you still have, all of us. You may have won the battle, but if you don't step it up, David, you may lose the kingdom. This is what Joab is telling the king. See, by yearning for his dead enemy, it was clear that David was saying that he would be happy if Absalom were alive, even if all of his own loyal troops were dead. That's not exactly good for team building around the kingdom. Joab tells David, step up, step up, go talk to your people, be the king. If you don't go, no one is going to stick with you. And it will be worse than that worst day, whatever that worst day was. It's going to be worse than that. I mean, talk about a strong rebuke. I think the most startling part of this rebuke is in verse six. You've covered the faces of all your servants with shame. Why? Well, because you love those who hate you and you hate those who love you. Think about that statement for a bit. Pastor Morgs was telling me this week that these are some of the most impactful verses for him in all of First and Second Samuel. And in, in, in that, in a way, these verses, in a way, these verses sum up these books in one verse. I've been thinking about his comments, how this verse shows the foolishness of David's actions. David, while showing flashes of brilliance, falls short. At times, he loves those who love him. At times, he hates them. At times, he hates his enemies. And at other times, he loves them at the cost of those who are loyally following him. He's all over the place. 
He's a king who loves the wrong people at the wrong time and fails to love the right people at the right time. Our Redeemer Church, King David falls well short once again. All this, as I started in the beginning, all this points to a better king. All this points to more waiting and waiting. David was foolish in how he loved. And yet we had another king who had come. And it looked like he was foolish too. In his loving, he died for his enemies. But it wasn't a negligent love like David toward Absalom. David loved not only his enemies, but he's also a faithful friend to those who love him and follow him. David couldn't navigate between those two worlds. His love always fell short, one way or the other. While David neglects his loyal followers here in these verses, Jesus never neglects us. Jesus always protects us. Jesus always preserves us. Jesus will never let us go. His death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead proves this. It proves that he's trustworthy. David's actions, both good and bad, point forward to a better king, a king who is faithful in all his ways, a king who dies for his enemies and a king who stands by his followers. He loved in ways David didn't and couldn't. Friend, if you don't yet know this king, follow him. Turn to him in repentance and faith. He's the greater David who lays down his life for his enemies and makes them his friends. You can do this right now as you watch. You can do this by placing your faith in Christ. Don't wait another day. No, friend, do it today. Well, we've now seen the rebuke of the king. How will David respond to those stern words? Our second point today is the return of the king. The return of the king. The king will return to his role of king. We see that in verses 8 and in many ways all the way down until the end of the chapter. David actually listens to Joab's rebuke. He responds with action. Look at verse 8. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate, and the people were all told, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, and all the people came before the king. David puts down those tissues. He, he wipes away the tears, tosses them aside, and he takes his seat, the rightful seat, as the king at the gate. This is what kings do. They sit in the gate area. This was in the center of the public and commercial life of any walled city. David took a seat, and the people came before him. But all is not rosy in David's neighborhood. There is division in Israel. Israel is in a dilemma. I mean, look at the end of verse 8. Now, Israel had fled every man to his own home. And then verse 9, and all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom he anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? So there's an issue here. David was from Judah, southern kingdom. He was appealing to Judah. He says in verse 12 that he was, that they, he was his bone, their bone and flesh, and he makes a pledge to support Amasa. Now, Amasa is the commander of Absalom's army. He puts him over in the place of Joab in verse 13. He listens to Joab's rebuke, but then he demotes him. Now, that's interesting. Now, why is he doing this? Well, it seems like he's trying to win the hearts of Judah. And it works. Some had probably supported Absalom, feared retribution, but David wins over their hearts. The text says it was as though they were one man. There is a unity with David and Jonah. He's winning their hearts back. 
I should say, with Judah, the southern kingdom. They, they, he was winning Judah's hearts. They seem happy. But remember, Judah is the southern kingdom. Remember, in the northern kingdom, you have what was called Israel. Instead of unifying the two kingdoms as one greater Israel, it looks like a political blunder. He appeals to his own people down south, but the northern kingdom won't have any of this. I mean, David, how could you replace Joab with uh, the defeated general? This is Absalom's general. This whole thing is a fiasco. It looks like there could be a, a civil war north and south. I mean, look all the way down to the end of chapter 19. Look at verses 41 through 43. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, we have 10 shares in the king. And in David also, we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. You can see the tension is building. Tension is building between Judah and Israel. Absalom apparently had received quite a bit of support from Judah down south. David was seeking to appease or to win over their hearts because Absalom was his enemy. But at the same time, Israel seems to turn against them. It looked like favoritism, and it sure seems like it. David is in a pickle. He's caught in between Judah and in between Israel, and he's not working to unify them. The king had returned, but there's no peace even between God's people. The rightful king has returned. Absalom is dead, but the kingdom is not as it should be. There is animosity in God's camp. There is envy in God's camp. There is jealousy among God's people. Isn't this, isn't this sad? I mean, the enemy has been defeated, and yet now it's God's people against God's people. I wish I could say this doesn't happen today. I wish I could say that today our churches are, are better than this. I wish I could say that today there's no division in Christ's church. I wish I could say that we've never had conflict at Redeemer Church of Dubai. But that's simply not true. I mean, it looks ugly here in our passage. Our passage among God's people looks ugly here. Think about how ugly it looks when we see this in the church. Envy, jealousy, favoritism. All this leads to division. Friends, let this be a warning to us as a church. Unity is so important. We're going to see here Israel on the verge of civil war in the upcoming pages. I mean, there is strife. There is tension. They're not coming together. And in between all this, we see a series of David's interactions with various people. Okay, you have the tension there. Shimei, Mephibosheth, Barzillai. Three men we're going to see in the midst of this tension kind of get a close-up moment here. We see Shimei in verses 16 through 23. Shimei is part of Saul's old clan. He did wrong back in chapter 16. He curses David. It's a bad scene. Though he seems to admit it here, he tries to argue why he deserves grace. David, I'm the first one here to meet you, king. Shouldn't that count for something? Others think he should be put to death for his transgression. David seems to be credited with patience here. He doesn't immediately react to the cursing. Instead, David wants this to be a day of rejoicing. Maybe he's finally considering the politics here. He's not wanting to take out someone who had quite a following from the Benjamite tribe. Again, David's trying to appease some people, just not working with all. Shammai's heart here uh, maybe was changed. It doesn't seem like it. Either way, he's met with grace from David for whatever reason, maybe political. 
We also meet in these verses here, in the midst of this tension, we meet Mephibosheth once again, verses 24 down to 30. We haven't seen him since chapter 16, and we remember even chapters before that, the mercy that David shows him when he brings this crippled boy into his palace as his own son. Now, chapter 16 wasn't a great scene. Allegations are made that Mephibosheth was excited about Absalom's revolt because it could bring power to himself. David confronts him, and Mephibosheth here responds with a sign in a speech. Two things. First, a sign. His toenails weren't cut. His beard, I trimmed my beard for this video. His beard was everywhere. He never trimmed it. His clothes were dirty. He hadn't washed them from the very day that the king left until he returned. There was, there was no secret to his loyalty. He stayed committed to David. This was risky while Absalom was on the hunt. Mephibosheth continues with the speech. He says, I was loyal to you the whole time, even when I was gone and deceived. I stayed true to you. So we see Mephibosheth there. And then we see Barzillai, verses 31 through 39. We meet him back in chapter 17. He's an old man. He's a wealthy farmer. He had helped the king during a time of exile. Now he comes down to bid David farewell. David expresses his thankfulness. Barzillai had sustained David. And so now David wants to sustain his old friend. You look down at verse 33. He offers for him to live in his kingly court. But Barzillai declines in his speech, pleads his age as a basis for refusal. He asks to die in his own town. That's all he asks for. He's faithful to the king and had supported the king well. So we see here the return of the king brings some mixed results. It brings some political blunders. It brings some interesting interactions with those three men during this time of tension between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And yet we see grace interspersed there. Some, some bright spots with Mephibosheth and even Barzillai. But the next chapter, things are going to go downhill fast again. This roller coaster ride up and down, up and down, up and down of King David continues as we're waiting, as we continue to wait and wait and wait for the perfect king. Until then, there's more rebellion. That's our third point today, the rebellion against the king. Number three, we see in chapter 20 that rebels are after the king once again. In some sense, chapter 20 here is a boring chapter, at least in some ways. It's, it's not a new story. It, it doesn't really add anything to the narrative. Why? Well, because it's just another story in a long line of rebellion stories here in the book. <laughs> I mean, we, we read this, we read through these, these 26 verses, and we say, here we go again. More rebellion, more pain, more tragedy, more waiting. Why more rebellion? When will this stop? Perhaps when you, when you read this, this is how you feel. You, you think, Lord, oh Lord, when will this end? When will everything be set right? Maybe when you study this with your community groups, you were thinking the same thing. Why so much fighting? Why can't we just all get along? Why can't countries get along? Why can't nations get along? Why can't Israel and Judah get along? Why can't David get along with others? We might look at our own situation and go, why can't churches get along? Why can't church members get along? We, we see all this in Sheba's revolt and we're reminded again here in this rebellion. Look at verses one and two. Now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjamite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. Then we see more evil in this time of waiting. Sheba is, is, is evil. He has rejected God's anointed king. He's breaking the covenant that bound the king and the northern tribes. We've seen the rebellion of Absalom. We're not quite ready yet for another rebellion here, but Sheba doesn't want David to have authority over him. Verse 3 is, an, is a sad reminder. I, oh, 
almost don't even want to read it, so, but it's another reminder of the consequences of sin. We'll, 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 we'll read it. Look at verse 3. And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Kind of an obscure verse, but a difficult one. These ladies are in a tough position. Absalom had been with the concubines in chapter 16, verses 20 through 22. So what Yahweh said would happen back in chapter 12, that I shall take your wives before your eyes and I shall give them to your companions. These, these women were not homeless, not starving, but David would have nothing to do with them anymore. They were isolated. They were, they were alone. Uh, they were essentially widows. They were unable to get married. They, they were lonely. They, they weren't free to marry. They weren't free to enjoy a social life. They were confined. Verse 3, a real subtle verse, but a real sad verse. There have been a, a lot of sad verses in this book, haven't there? A lot of sad chapters. David Bathsheba, Amnon violating Tamar, then despising her, he throws her out. Now here again, women abused, women neglected, women being thrown around, women hurt, women suffering, women dragged around between men, then essentially pushed to widowhood. Suffering is a consequence of another's sin. It's a startling reminder that our sin doesn't just affect us, but it affects everyone around us. Lives are destroyed because of the lust or greed or envy of others. It's not all about you. Let this be a reminder that we don't sin in isolation. Our sin always affects others in our community. Let's also remember those who are suffering the effects of others' sin. And we've talked about this several times in this series. If you've been the victim of abuse or neglect, we hurt with you. If you're in need of help, please, please reach out to us. We love you and we want most of all for you to know that Jesus loves you. That he is the one who will bind up the brokenhearted, that he will, he will wipe away all tears one day. Well, we see consequences of sin here. Sheba's revolt continues throughout the rest of the chapter. David does what he can to stop it. He orders his new commander, Amasa, to call out the Judah militias within three days in verse four. But for some reason, he just couldn't do it. He couldn't get the job done. David orders Abishai to try and do it. Again, David's still passing over Joab, even though in the text, those troops are called Joab's troops. Amasa's late, but he catches up with Abishai's troops. And we see Joab again. Imagine Amasa and Joab coming together in contact with each other. Probably not the best of friends, I wouldn't think. Joab approaches Amasa both with kind words and apparent affection. You know, we're not, not, not allowed to hug these days, but it, it would be like a sky hug. I mean, verse 9 says that Joab reached for Amasa's beard with his right hand. And one scholar says, the specific reference to the right hand is intentional. The right hand is the hand with which one does battle, and it's empty here. And thus, no threat is implied. In fact, it's used to grab the beard as part of the greeting kiss, so common among kinsmen and friends. Amasa thought he was coming in peace, and that's when Joab struck him in the belly. Verse 10, it's a gross scene. You can read about it later if you'd like, but the text says that the attack spilled his insides on the ground. Just one wound and he was dead. Then Joab and Abishai pursued after Sheba. No shed tears here, just another killing, another obstacle removed. Joab is a complicated fellow, isn't he? I mean, we struggle to know 
time and time again if he's doing the right thing or if he's not here. Joab seems to be removing obstacles in his way to get what he wants, to get his leadership back. So now we see even a dead Amasa is an obstacle in verses 11 through 14. Uh, it's an obstacle that he's going to have to deal with. How Dale Ralph Davis comments on these verses this way. Now, Amasa's corpse is an obstacle to rousing the troops after Joab. Amasa was wallowing in his blood in the middle of the road, and every Judean stopped in his tracks when he saw him. Joab's henchmen figured it out, dragged Amasa's remains from the road into the field, threw a cover over him, and got the military traffic flowing again. Rebellion. Murder. Blood. Joab is taking out the last man above him, and he returns to Jerusalem, and David says nothing. There's, there's no rebuke. There's no retribution. Instead, he, David, silently restores the general. <laughs> Joab essentially takes out his competition, takes matters into his own hands, and does it. He's commander for David once again. He's not seeking the throne. He's not trying to hurt David. He's actually loyal to David, but he does take out everyone who's a threat to him as commander. And it works. Sheba's rebellion loses steam. There's not much support. It looks like Joab's men are trying to climb over the main wall to take out the city in order to get to Sheba. They're trying to knock down the wall when mysteriously a female voice is thrown into the air. It's an interesting conversation. I mean, look at verses 16 through 22. I just want to read this whole thing. Then a wise woman called from the city, listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her and the woman said, are you Joab? And he answered, I am. Then she said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I'm listening. Then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel? Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Joab answered, far be it for me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bitri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone and I will withdraw from the city. The woman said to Joab, behold, his, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bitri, and threw it out over to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city, every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Oh, this is a little, little unknown. Uh, it's an obscure conversation in the scriptures. Maybe you haven't noticed it before. The woman wanted words with Joab. You know, the interview is, it's a little funny if you think about it. Lots of details are recorded in this odd conversation. The woman, she prides herself in her town's reputation. One could almost hear her ask Joab, did you know we won Israelite town of the year last year? Yeah, we're pretty amazing. How could you dare destroy us? We're, we're, we're a mother to Israel. We are the star of the show. She accuses Joab of seeking to wipe out a mother city in Israel, verse 19, of wanting to swallow up the inheritance of Yahweh. I mean, Joab defends himself, saying, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm not here to destroy. <laughs> now, lots of irony here. That's what Joab does, right? He's a destroyer, but okay. That, that, that's, 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 that's who he is. But he says, no, 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 we just want Sheba. He's been fighting our king. Hand him over. We're gonna, we'll let you all go. Verse 21, the woman makes a promise, goes back. Verse 22, the people agree. Sheba loses his head. And rebellion was overthrown. The wise woman saves the city. 
Joab goes home with the enemy's head, verse 23, makes it very clear that Joab is now in charge of the army. And David moves on to live another day. Rebellion done. The end. Another rebellion. Another battle. And we move on. In a sense, it's a mundane story, mundane chapter, mundane point, mundane battle. It's another battle. It's another rebellion. And there's some interesting details, some obscure details, but we're left waiting for something more. I mean, we're waiting again for David to be the hero that he isn't and that he can't be. We're, we're, we're left waiting for a true hero. Redeemer Church, it's December. It's been a difficult 2020, and we're all waiting for the hope of Christmas, aren't we? We're counting down the days. We're celebrating Advent as a church. We're waiting for all things to be set right. We're waiting for COVID to be done away with. We're tired. We want our lives back. But even then, friends, there will be more waiting. All won't be right. There will still be the pandemic of sin, and the only one who can make all things right is Jesus. So Redeemer Church, let's look to our true King this Christmas. Let's look to Jesus. He is the only one who could set all things right. Friends, let's pray. Oh, Father, we ask that you would indeed make all matters right. Wipe every tear from our eyes. And not just the COVID pandemic, but end our sin pandemic and our lives in this fallen world. Lord, would, would Jesus come back? Would he come back for his people? Would he make all wrong things right? Would, would, you, would you bring in the, the full consummation of the kingdom with, with the full fulfillment of the kingdom? Would it all come into fruition? And would we on that day have no tears? Would we on that day have no pain, no viruses, no pandemics, no sin, no consequences to sin? Oh Lord, help us. Oh, would that day come soon? Oh Lord Jesus, come, come soon, come be with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.